All right, look at uh, John chapter 10, if you would. I'm going to read a few verses to end the first half of the chapter, and then we'll really focus on the second half of the chapter in just a moment. We kind of know the background of this from last week. Chapter 9, Jesus (coughs) heals the blind man and gives him sight. Uh, He's been sort of working through, we call this part of the book of John sort of a festival cycle. The first five or so chapters of the book of John are sort of a Galilean cycle. Jesus is traveling through Galilee. Not many yet know who he is. He's been kind of traveling around near his hometown, working miracles, teaching, healing. And then there's this sort of festival cycle where there's several festivals in and around, and many people come to Jerusalem. So he's there. And from chapter five or six till our chapter today is going to end that sort of festival cycle. And he's sort of been teaching all through the book of John and referring back to some things that uh, the Jewish people would have known and really uh, taken hold and faith from Exodus and from all those things that made them the Jewish people themselves. Uh, At the beginning of chapter 10, we read last week that he says, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. Uh, There's a beautiful theme there. John 3, he says, just like the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, uh, I'm going to be the son of man lifted up that you can look to for salvation. Uh, He says, hey, you guys remember the manna that God gave you? Uh, He teaches on that and he says, I am better than that. I am the bread of life. So this serpent that was in the wilderness, I'm better than that serpent. The manna that was in the wilderness, I am better than that manna. I am uh, the bread of life. And then they get to this feast of tabernacles, which is uh, these different, this festival of lights. And uh, that tradition carries even to today. And he heals this blind man and saying, I am the light of the world. He doesn't just say it. He gives this man light that had been born in darkness to prove that he's the Messiah. So he said, more than the lights of the tabernacle, I'm better than the light that guided you through that wilderness. I am the permanent light and the better light. And then last week, there's even a picture there to the Old Testament. Of course, they knew very much what the shepherding and following. And then that door, and this was near kind of uh, different things where they've been thinking toward the Passover. And you think about that door that they would wipe the blood on and trust for God for salvation. He says, I am greater than that. I am the final door. I am the great shepherd that will lead you through to salvation. And just as often happened throughout Jesus' ministry, when he teaches them these things, claiming these signs of deity over, I am better, I am God, Let's look at verse number 19 and we'll find out their reaction. John 10, verse 19. There was a division, therefore, among the Jews for these saying. And many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? So they're confused by what he's teaching. He says, I'm the door, I'm the shepherd. They didn't understand it. And so he really makes it clear to them. They say, well, this, this man must be crazy. He's of a devil. Verse 21, others said... These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? So they're trying to use their minds here and their logic. He just healed a man born blind, and now that man sees. And we don't understand all who he is, but that is not a normal man, they say. Verse 22 gives us a little bit of a description of when these things happen. We don't know exactly how long transpires between verse 21 and verse 22, but I don't think it's very long because of what they're still talking about and what Jesus refers to. It says, And it was at Jerusalem the feast of the dedication, so another feast, and it was winter. 
Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, and then <coughs> came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Because why? Verse 30, I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones to, again to stone him. It's ironic, back in chapter 5, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. And their response was they wanted to stone him, they wanted to kill him. Now his response when he says, I and the Father, I am one with God. I am from the Father. And they say, we're going to kill you again. And that's sort of a fitting end to the cycle. We're right back where they started in their unbelief. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, Many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him, saying, For good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, makest thyself God. Jesus answered them, a little peculiar story, but we're going to explain this here as we walk through today. Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe, not, believe me not, but if I do... Though you believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Let's ask the Lord to help as we try to understand uh, with his strength this part of his word. Lord, <coughs> we come to you this morning grateful and thankful that you are the only way, that you are the only one that can pay for our sins and that you did just that. I thank you that you're the only door, and that you are the good shepherd. And I pray that our minds and our hearts would not be like these people this morning, but that rather than unbelief and trying to live our lives on our own, that we would come to you in humble submission and have faith that you guide and that you know and that you work what is best. Help us again today as we open your word. In your name, amen. If you would, just glance back through the portion of the chapter that we read, <coughs> starting kind of back in verse number 22. kind of want to lay out <coughs> the outline or whatever you want to call it of what transpires in this. Because when you read this, and as I was sort of preparing for this week, I kind of knew a week and a half ago or so that this particular passage was coming. And uh, this is not the easiest passage to just oh, this is what that means, and we just take it at that. It's, it's sort of thick, uh, as I would describe it, and there's some reference to some Old Testament things, and it's back and forth. And so as we enter in, let's try to simplify a little bit of what's happening and just break down the process of it. So Jesus teaches, right, on uh, what He is, and He's claiming this deity. Then they come to Him in verse 22 through really down verse 24. They say... What are you trying to teach us 
Are you really the Messiah? We're going to talk about why they asked that in a moment. But then here's sort of how the chapter breaks down. Verse 25 through 30, Jesus gives an answer. Okay? Then verse 31 through 33, they respond to that answer. Have you ever answered someone and you know that as you're answering, they don't like your answer and they're already, you already know they're going to respond to your answer with another question or with something else. They've already made up in their mind how they think. That's what happens. Jesus answers them, verse 25 through 30. 31 through 33 is their response. Then verse 34 through 36, Jesus takes another reproach and answers in another way. Then verse 37 through verse 39, Jesus gives them one final invitation to believe. And then in verse 40 through 42, we see their final response before Jesus enters his kind of holy week, that last week that he's alive on this earth. And so we have Jesus answers, then they respond again. Jesus answers again, inviting them to believe, and then they respond one final time. But as this chapter sort of breaks up or breaks down, however you want to look at it, but within this, there are two very big themes that you can't miss. There's a lot of details here that we could try to dig into, and what does this represent, and how does this look, and different things, but we have to be careful not to do that at the expense of missing the very big idea that Jesus is trying to teach these people because He's trying to teach us the same thing today. We could walk through this passage this morning and it could be another sermon about sheep and shepherds. We see that there, uh, the first few verses of our passage. It could be about eternal life, eternal security we see mentioned here. It could be about bearing witness. We see that at the end. It could be about controversy that <coughs> followed Jesus all through His ministry. It could be about their opposition or the division, the faith and the unbelief. It could be a lot of different things that would be a fitting end, as we mentioned. They finish in the same spot they started in chapter 5, unbelief. But without seeing the big picture, I think we would miss <clears throat> the two things that Jesus is really trying to teach us. And here's what they are. The first one is in verse 30. It's a very simple phrase. Jesus says, I and my Father are one. And then look at the next one is in verse 35. And look at the end of the verse. He says, and the Scripture cannot be broken. Those are the two big ideas from which the rest of this part of this passage really flows. And those two big ideas are this. I and my Father are one. I am God, is what Jesus is saying. And then the other one is about His Bible. It's about the Scriptures. It's about His Word. And what is His message there? It cannot be broken. And so His message is this. Jesus is, or God is, I am unbeatable and the Bible is unbreakable. And he says to them, I cannot be defeated because I and my Father are one. You say, well, what do you mean it cannot be defeated? He's already said, my sheep that actually believe in me are kept in my hand. No one will take them away. And because they're kept in my hand and we are kept in the Father's hand, no one will take them from the Father. We cannot be defeated. God cannot be beaten. And he says, and because God cannot be beaten, how do we know that? We know that from the Scripture, and Scripture cannot be broken. And Jesus finishes by teaching about this good shepherd and the door, and the wonderful, glorious, exciting message that he finishes with is and says, in spite of your unbelief, aren't you glad Jesus didn't give up in frustration? Aren't you glad that Jesus didn't look at these frustrating, unbelieving people and say, 
Never mind. But he says to them one more time, as he tells us in our sometimes unbelieving hearts, and we may have faith, we may be Christians, but there are times in our lives, if we'll admit it, where we do not look at our God as unbeatable. We don't look at our God as undefeatable. And we don't look at God's word as unbreakable because of our lack of faith. And Jesus, though he could be frustrated with these people, in patience gives them one more time these truths. Jesus, though we can be frustrating in our walk, in our Christian life, gives us these two truths. I cannot be beaten. You might be able to. I, I can for sure be beaten in my spirit and in my emotions and in my heart and through temptation and through grief and through all these different things. I can be beaten. But in Christ, I can never be plucked from his hand. I can never be taken away. I can never be defeated through Christ. The Bible is referred to as lenses or spectacles by which we see the rest of the world. And this is one of those passages this morning that if you could kind of imagine, it's a, it's a set of glasses that if you were to pick up, the world may seem blurry at this moment in our lives. That we don't understand exactly how things work or why they work or how, why things are happening the way they are. Why our world functions the way that it does. And why, if God is so good, is there so much bad in the world? And why, if this is happening and this is going well in our church or in our life, why does this happen? There's all sorts of things. But when we pick up these glasses or spectacles of God's Word and we put this passage on our eyes, it helps us see clearly what God is actually doing in this world. That He cannot be beaten. And His promises will never be broken. Let's look at the first one of those affirmations, the first one of those statements that He makes. First, I and the Father are one. At this time, this feast of dedication that took place, it says in verse 22 that it's the feast of dedication. This is not actually an Old Testament ritual. This is not a festival that God had commanded. This is not one that they had been celebrating for hundreds and even thousands of years. This particular festival started about 150 years, 160 years before Christ was born. There was this, uh, it happens between the book of Malachi and when John the Baptist starts his ministry. A man named Antichus Epiphanes overran the temple, the Jewish temple, and he set up a pagan altar to different gods. And uh, he overran it. He started to sacrifice pigs in the temple. Just an insulting, disgusting, dark time in the lives of these Jewish people. And uh, then this leader, Judas Maccabeus, kind of resurrected their revolution against them. And they went in and they fought and they kind of freed the temple from foreign armies and dedicated the temple. And this particular time of year, sort of the end of this winter time, that's when they celebrated this feast. And that's kind of when Jesus is dealing with these people. And so they're already kind of thinking about, they know Judas Maccabeus was not the Savior. He was not the Messiah, but he was sort of a, to them, a picture of a hero, Messiah-like hero, where we are in darkness and we are captured and we are in prison, but we're celebrating that a man came along and built up this army and freed us from that slavery. They're celebrating that. So that's already in their minds. And with that in their minds, that is the context in which Jesus says to them, I am a good shepherd. I lead you. I can't be beaten. My scripture is unbreakable. And he's saying, I am the perfect Messiah. Because I'm going to free you not just from temple darkness and not just from political darkness. I'm going to free you from eternal darkness. He says, with that in their mind, they come to him in verse 24, thinking about a Messiah. He says, they say to him, how long are you going to keep us 
in suspense. Look at verse 24. How long dost thou make us doubt? If you're Jesus, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, this is not an honest seeking question, okay, when they ask this. They're not really curious if he is the Messiah or not. They've made up their mind. They're not looking for an answer so they can worship him. They're looking for an answer so they can attack him. They are saying, they're like, okay, we have waited long enough. You're saying, good shepherd, you're the light, you're the bread. You're, you're kind of insulting to us with all these Old Testament things you're referring to. Just tell us if you're the Messiah, parentheses, so that we can kill you. That's really what they're looking for. They're trying to bait him into this. And Jesus doesn't shy away from his answer. He says, I have already told you those things. Maybe not in those explicit words, but he says, my actions have told you that I'm the Messiah. My spirit tells you that I'm the Messiah. The way that I do the works of God and obey the scripture and imperfect tells you I am the Messiah. I have told you through stories and parables that I am the Messiah. I have already told you, but you, it's not that I have failed to be clear. It's that you fail to believe. That's what Jesus tells him. He says, you haven't gotten that because you're not on my flock and you don't believe, but my sheep, those that are really following me, they have no trouble believing who I really am. And in their response, they're looking for a reason not to believe already. And when he tells them this, they pick up stones to murder him. There's this angst that is sort of building. There's this doubt that they have. And it's not a sin to doubt in certain circumstances. It's not a sin to lack full faith. It's a sin to live in that lack of faith. It's a sin to not open our minds to true belief in what Christ is. It's not a sin to ask questions, but it can be a sin to refuse the true answer. And that's what happens here in this scripture. They ask questions, not doubting, looking for answer. They want to ask more questions. This is not the honest sort of doubt. They're choosing to remain in doubt. And he says, <coughs> excuse me, there's the doubt that looks for answers, and then there's the doubt that looks for more questions. And that's what they have. Don't keep us in suspense. Are you the Christ? Because we're going to kill you. And then verse 26 and verse, through verse 28, he tells them, I am the Christ, and I give eternal life. Now, they would have been furious because he claims a few things here. Their Jewish mind hold, held very fast to the fact that God had ultimate right over two important things in human life, the creation or the coming about of human life and the end and the judgment of human life only belonged to God. And look at what he claims there right away. He says, I give life. I give eternal life. And they're saying, you cannot claim that. Only God can claim that. And then he says to them, I give life because I'm from the Father. Me and my Father are one. In other words, he's saying to them, I give life because I am God. That's what he's telling them. And that's why they're furious and they want to kill him for blasphemy. They, what they believe about Jesus is right. What they think Jesus is saying is correct. they like, you're saying that you're God and the punishment for that is death. And those things were true. But the thing that they missed is he was telling the truth. So it wasn't blasphemy because they couldn't believe. And so he says to them, and he gives us this great truth, I am my Father and one. What does that mean for his sheep? What does that mean for those that trust him in salvation? Look, if you would, at verse number 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
And those that follow me, look at verse 28, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And if that wasn't enough, he says to them, those that follow me will never be lost. Aren't you glad this morning? Because there's a few moments these last few weeks when things have happened that my brain and my heart feel lost. But when I come to God's unbreakable word, I am told I am never lost if I'm a believer in Christ. And Jesus says, not only are they never lost from me, look at verse 29, it's like a double security thing. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. He says, so if you don't think my followers are safe because I'm going to keep them, let me tell you this, my followers are safe because God the Father is going to keep them too. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Back up in uh, verse number 17, it says, Therefore my father does my father love me, because I lay down my life for my sheep, that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down for, I lay it down myself. So what is Jesus saying? He's kind of continuing that theme. No man takes my life from me. I give it willfully. And when those trust in me, no one can take their life from them either. No one can take their physical life without my say. No one can take their spiritual life ever. And as he walks through this passage, he makes this astounding claim. Why are we so secure as Christians? And aren't you glad this morning you are doubly secure? Because there are mornings and moments, particularly in the mornings, that I do not feel so secure. When I am impatient, when I am greedy, when I am evil in heart, that I am glad in those moments that I am double secure. Why is it that we can be so secure? Because of the truth in verse 30, I and my Father are one. Jesus says, you can trust me because I am God and I cannot be defeated. That in our lives is a glorious message. How does it apply to our lives? Do you believe that Jesus is God? I claim Jesus is God in my salvation, and I am thankful for that. But do you live, and do I live, do we live as though Jesus is God in our everyday life? Because there's times it's easy to try to detach God, Jesus from his deity as God. So, well, he was a God-sent man. He is God-sent here as a man. So he's a little different than God overall. And so when I read the gospel sometimes and I see how Jesus acted and how Jesus treated people, for some reason in my mind, I don't think I have to treat people that way. Jesus was perfect. So I kind of detach myself from that. Or I look at a command or a teaching of Jesus and I'm Kind of like, well, he did teach that, but maybe it applies a little differently to me today. No, Jesus, if I believe Jesus is God, which is good because only God can save me, and if I believe that Jesus is God, when I look at how he lived and what he commanded, it is how God lives and it is what God commanded. And so if I don't completely line up and obey and follow what Jesus says, I'm not following God. The God that created the universe the God that holds all judgment in His hand. The God that created hell for Satan and his demons and those that reject Him. The God that created heaven for eternal bliss to glorify Him. The God that controls all things in this world. The God that created all things that we could see or ever understand. That God is Jesus Christ. 
And so if we say, well, I'm going to follow Jesus, kind of, you're saying, I'm going to follow the most powerful being in the universe, sort of. If we kind of halfway, half-hearted love Christ, we kind of half-hearted love God. If we look at what Jesus commands and what Jesus says, He says, I and the Father are one. You cannot separate me from God. It's almost as though Jesus is sort of lining Himself up at finally at this point in His ministry to tell them, I'm not like you. I am nothing like you. I may look like a man. I may act like a man. You may be able to see and feel and touch me, but I am God. I am different. You ever play that game kind of uh, as a elementary kid? I think it's probably been outlawed since then, but uh, Red Rover, where you line up, and it's like, uh, I, don't, I don't know. What, it's a teacher that hated their students, I think, created that game. And so they line up, you know, you're holding hands, and it's like this vast chasm, and it's like no man's land in the middle. It's like, we're going to call so-and-so over, and they run, and it's like they're trying to get from one. I mean, it's very clear who's on what team. It's like you get points. If you break through, you, you get a point. If you dislocate somebody's shoulder, you get two points, you know, and things like that as you're walking through. All right, But it's very clear, over there is that team, over here is this team, and there is a big gap in between. And God, Jesus is saying here, Finally, let me lay this out for you. Over there is man. Over here is God. So let's split up. If you're a man, go to that side. If you are God, come to this side. And Jesus walks over and he says, I am, I'm the only one here that can claim this. There is no one else like me. But here's the kicker sometimes in our lives. Sometimes we follow Jesus the way that we follow other normal men. And we shouldn't. Have you ever followed Christ the way that you would follow a boss? It's easy to follow a boss that is excited and has the same goal as you in mind and all these different things. But then when they assign things that are like out of your comfort zone or they're a little lackadaisical in how they handle the business or whatever it may be, it becomes a little more difficult to follow that boss, doesn't it? Or parents, you know, as we're giving instruction to our kids. Sometimes they're excited when there is an ice cream at the end of an instruction. But when it's just clean your room to clean your room, it's a whole lot less motivating. And sometimes when we follow Christ, when we see the result, when we see what has been promised, it's, I'm motivated. I'm going to go. I'm going to follow. But then when Christ leads us in a place that I'm not, it's out of my comfort zone. He's not handling a situation the same way I would. He's not laying something on my heart that I already had on my heart. He's putting something beyond. I'm going to have to sacrifice a little to serve God in the way Jesus wants me to so I don't follow Him quite the same way. But Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you're following God Himself. Two teams, two separate sides. And He is nothing like us, there's this unbridgeable chasm in between. But the glorious thing is that God, Jesus Christ, spans that chasm and lets us come and follow God Himself. You know, it's something interesting in the story in the book of John. And hear me carefully so that uh, there's no misquoting here. God Himself as a character is really never found in the book of John. One place in chapter 12, God speaks from heaven saying, this is my son. He gives approval of him. But other than that, you see the father mentioned, Jesus teaches about the father, talks about his spirit. But just God as a whole is not a character in the book of John. 
There's no place where God does something in the book of John or Jesus is doing this thing and then God does this thing. There's nowhere in the book of John that God is his own character. Why is that? Because John, as he's writing this, knows Jesus is God. And so as he tells this story, it's not John telling just the story of Jesus. It is Jesus telling us the story of God. And it's glorious that God didn't just give us instruction from heaven, but He sent His Son. He brought Himself to this earth so we could know what He's like, so that we could see, and though we've never seen Him with our physical eyes, I can understand a little bit more of what God is like because He came here on this earth as a man to live as us. And I can follow, radically follow Him. And though I look at the book of John and I don't see God's name really mentioned there, I see Jesus and Jesus is God. This is an essential truth to us being a Christian. And we may think this is old hat. Of course, we believe Jesus is God. He gave His Son for us. We believe in Him. He forgives us of our sins. But do you follow Him like He is God? Or do we follow Him like He's just man? Look at the second thought today as we finish out. First is that Jesus cannot be beaten. The second thing is that Scripture, His Bible, cannot be broken. Look, if you would, in verse number 34, Jesus answered, they pick up stones, they're going to kill Him, because He says, at the end of verse 33, we're going to stone you because you make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, and this is not a complete argument that He's making, He's just kind of, buying a little time here and how he handles this. Notice in verse 34. Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods? And if God, or if he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father hath sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. I want you to turn real real quick to uh, Psalm Chapter 82, Psalm number 82. We'll be there in just a moment. What is Jesus talking about? Because when I, when I read that, I'm a little, a little baffled. What is he talking about when he says, it is, written in your, is it not written in your law? I said, ye are gods. And then he says, if he called them gods who received the word of God, and scripture can't be broken, then why are you going to stone me for saying I'm the son of God? Notice, if you would, he's quoting. And notice in Jesus moment of trial and his moment of pressure, where does he go? When someone is about to kill him, when they have picked up stones to end his life, what does he rely on? He relies on the Bible. He relies on God's Word. Psalm 82 is an interesting psalm. It's not a very clearly, sometimes understandable psalm, but notice what it says in verse number 1. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among, notice this word, the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Now, who is God speaking to? Is he addressing false gods, idols? No. He would never speak to idols as though they are actual living animate objects. This is a word that he would use often. Israel was led by different people. Kings, sometimes priests, and then in the middle there was these judges that God led by. And in a way, they were referred to as this word that we now have, gods. Notice the little g, okay? Uh, He was referencing them with this word, gods, because they received the word of God, and then they gave that to others and led them. So he's speaking to these judges. 
He says, he judgeth, God judges even the judges. And then look at verse 2. How long we judge unjustly? So they're not doing their job. They're not doing it well. Defend the poor and the fatherless. Luckily, humans can't, but God can. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. We see that in all our culture, that justice and affliction are not handled well, but God can. Deliver the poor and the needy. Rid thee out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. And notice in verse 6, here's the verse, literally Jesus is quoting word for word. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. He's telling these judges, you have lost your way. You've lost your place. You are leading in a way not as I lead. He, he says, I'm supposed to lead you as judges, and then you lead the people. And he says, I've called you gods with a little g because you're my representation to the people. And Jesus, if you go back to John 10, that's all that he's referencing. He's not trying to, no, no Jew would read this and think Jesus is saying that all humans are some form of God or all believers are some form of God. All he is saying in verse 34, he says, is it not written in your law you are gods? He says, God used the word gods, little g, for some judges and for those that represented God here on this earth. And you're going to stone me? Remember the verse said, you're gods and all you that believe are the children of God. He says, and you're going to stone me, who being sent from God and has done the works of God. I haven't just told you what God said. I have actually done God's work. I've worked miracles. I've actually spoken the word of God to you. And though you know in your scripture, in the Jews, these people would have taken this Bible very seriously. They believed that God's word was unbreakable. And so Jesus tells them, I can take one chapter, an obscure psalm, not even Ten Commandments, not even those things. I can take one chapter, one little verse, and Jesus says, I can take one word. That's how powerful God's word is. I can take one word and break your argument totally apart. So you're going to kill me for saying I'm the Son of God when I do all these miracles and when I do the works of God for saying I'm a child of God, I'm a son of God. You're going to kill me for it? Now, they were right. He was claiming to be God himself. But what is Jesus doing? What is he trying to teach us here in this passage this morning? That in a intense, an intense moment of his life, his full reliance and his full submission was to God's word. Why? Because of that simple phrase, but powerful phrase at the end of verse 35, and the scripture cannot be broken. And he turns their point on themselves. He says, you say the Bible can't be broken. You say scripture is infallible. You say it is without error. You say it is the most powerful thing in the world. Well, let me quote something to you. See, Jesus comes, and though he frees us from the law, he doesn't discredit the law. And though he takes the Old Testament and he says, I'm freeing you from some of those things because I'm a better version of those things, he doesn't discredit the Old Testament. He doesn't discredit God's word. Jesus doesn't say, I'm God, so I'm above God's word. What an example Jesus gives us that God <laughs> comes to earth in human form and he doesn't just do whatever he wants and act however he wants and live however he wants. Even Jesus says, God's word is what I will submit to. I do my Father's work. I follow my Father's word. He says, I'm going to submit to God's word. I am going to claim God's word as unbreakable. I am going to say that God's word can't be broken. That's how much I think of God's word. Now, watch this. Jesus shows high esteem for the Bible. What do we show? 
if Jesus Christ, God of the universe, picks up or quotes God's word and says, hey, look, you can't stone me. Even just this one simple word in God's word should discredit that whole argument because God's word is not breakable. I'll rely on that. What did he do? He's on the cross. He's quoting different parts of Scripture. What did he do when he was tempted by Satan? He quoted Scripture. What did he do when uh, he, he was faced with trials or awkward questions from the Pharisees? He quoted Scripture. He relied on the Bible. Why would Jesus do that? He is God. All his words are God's word. Why would Jesus rely so much on God's word? To show us as an example that we have something left in this world. Though Jesus has ascended to heaven, he's not here physically anymore. He doesn't have to be because his word is unbreakable. And because he's left us something that we have, and we don't have to have him physically in this earth to have victory over sin. We don't have to have him to heal all of our diseases and fix all of our problems. We don't have to have him physically on this earth to show us exactly physically where to go and how to follow him. We have his word. And why would Jesus submit so much to God's word? Because he wants us too to submit to God's word. He wants the priority placed on him. But he wants it done through God's word. Through all throughout the Gospel of John, he quotes Deuteronomy, he quotes Psalm 22 when he's on the cross. His power he never disrespected, never disregarded, and never disagreed with a single word of Scripture. Why then do I sometimes disrespect, disregard, and disagree with something God has told me in his word? Like the Pharisees, sometimes I try to figure out why that's not exactly what God meant. Sometimes I try to think, well, that's maybe a little overboard in our culture today. Or I say, well, that was written so long ago. Maybe somebody else has written something else that will help me more than this. This is God's unbreakable word. And in your darkest moment, in your most confusing moment, in your most painful moment, in your best and glorious, most successful moment, Jesus says, look, to God's word. He says, I affirm it, I believe it, I trust it, and I humble myself to it, and I am God, and I can't be beaten. And if me, the unbeatable God of the universe, says that my Bible is unbreakable, then you should have faith in it too. I want us to think about how the chapter ends, and we'll be done this morning. Look at verse 39. Their reaction... They believed, and they're like, oh, we get it now. This is awesome. Yes, we totally understand. No, verse 39, therefore, they sought again to take him. That means they were going to kill him. But he escaped out of their hand. And then there's some, uh, an interesting picture here. It, it, he could have easy, John could have easily just walked to John chapter 11, and we never would have known any different. They didn't believe. Just go to John 11. Jesus is going to heal and raise a dead man. But look at verse 40. Jesus went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized. There's a key there. And there he abode. So Jesus goes back where John was from in the wilderness. And many resorted. Notice this. Many resorted unto him. It means there were people that believed and followed him. And they followed him from Jerusalem and the feast out into the wilderness. Why? Because they said, he is God. 
And we agree his Bible is unbreakable. And what does it say? And they said, John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man were true. They said, we heard John preach. And everything he said about Jesus was true. And look at verse 42. And many believed on him there. These were people that believed and heard John the Baptist's message that had listened to what he said. They know John didn't work any miracles. He preached and he baptized. He preached and he baptized. And he pointed to the coming Christ. And now they say, because of his testimony, because John pointed to Jesus, they believed. Think about our own lives. I want you to turn, and this will be our last verse that we read today, John chapter 3, and look at verse number 28. John 3, verse number 28. Let's go, let's go back to John the Baptist. What did he teach? What did he point out that made people believe? And we're going to bring this to a quick, but hopefully, through God's Spirit, powerful ending. John, verse, John chapter 3, look at verse 28. What was this message? I think it's interesting that Jesus goes from Jerusalem out to where John the Baptist was, and some of John the Baptist's followers follow him there. Verse 27 says, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Verse 28, Ye yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He says, I am grateful. He says, I, I don't care that you're not paying attention to my ministry anymore. I just want you to look at Jesus. And sometimes on this earth, we get so consumed with who gets the credit. And if people realize that our lives are successful, and if people realize we're doing a good job for God, and John says, I don't care. I'm just happy that Jesus is being promoted and that Jesus is being lifted up. And look at verse 30. Here's where we'll find our final verse today. He must increase, but I must decrease. What should be our reaction this morning to the fact that Jesus is unbeatable and His Word is unbreakable? It should be that He increases and we decrease. My desires fade away and His desires are lifted up. My thinking of what is right and moral should fade away and His commands of what is right and true should be what is held high in my heart. My mission and my goals should fall away, be decreased, and He should be lifted up. And the fact that Jesus cannot be defeated and His Word cannot be broken is good news. It is great news for me as a believer. But for all that is lost even those that we assume are way too far gone. Have you ever thought of somebody like that in this world? You have a neighbor, co-worker, a family member, a son, a daughter, a mom, a dad, some celebrity, some person, politician, whatever. Somebody in this world and you think they are too far gone. Someone of another religion, someone of another faith, and you say there's no Hope for them. Think about what just happened in this passage. And think about what can happen if Christians say, I need to fall away and Jesus needs lifted up. Why? Because Jesus never looked at anyone as too far gone. Men came down and said, you say you're God and we are going to kill you. You don't do that with like a passive, eh, ho-hum attitude. 
They're furious. They're angry. You ever seen somebody when they're angry? They spit's coming out because they're speaking so fast and passionately. They are going to kill God on this earth. And what did Jesus do to them? Did he say, go home? Go away? No, he said, come to me. Remember what he said? He says, if you don't believe my works, believe in him that sent me, believe. And Jesus, speaking to people who wanted to murder him. Is there someone in this world that you think would be more far gone than attempted murder of the God of the universe? That's, that's pretty bad. It's probably as bad as it gets. But to those people, Jesus says, come. And this morning, who can you think in your mind that you may have thought for a long time is too far gone? Through prayer to the unbreakable word of God, the power of the unbreakable word of God, and prayer to the unbeatable Christ, they can still be reached, and our message to them is still, come home.